Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I am your host, Mark Shapiro. Before we get to this episode, just want to thank our sponsors, Lori Bedke and Creighton University. Creighton University believes in equipping physicians for success in the exam room, the operating room, and the boardroom. If you want to increase your business acumen, deepen your leadership knowledge, and earn your seat at the table, Creighton's healthcare executive education is for you. Specifically tailored to busy physicians, our hybrid programs blend the richness of on-campus residencies with the flexibility of online learning. Earn a Creighton University Executive MBA degree in 18 months or complete the non-degree Executive Fellowship in six months. Visit www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E to learn more. Well, friends, we are here. This is episode number 200 of Explore the Space. I am incredibly proud. I am so happy that we've hit this milestone, and I am absolutely delighted to share that the guest in episode 200 is my mom. Margaret Shapiro is an extraordinary writing coach. She has her master's in psychotherapy and she is a wonderful mother. It was just an absolute treat to have her on. We talk about her journey as an immigrant coming to the United States when she was 21 years old, about how she maintains her sense of optimism, which is something that she has instilled in me since the beginning. And she maintains today and is one of the most critical things that I still go to my mom for on a regular basis. We talk about her use of her writing practice and being a writing coach. It was just wonderful. It was just such a treat to get to speak with someone who obviously has had such a huge part in my life and continues to and is instrumental in just all aspects. And it was really, really special. A couple of times I definitely get pretty choked up, but we made it all the way through. And I just could not think of a better way to hit episode number 200 of something that means so much to me, Explore the Space podcast, than to share it with my mom. Before we get to the episode, just want to remind everyone, please do check out the archive. 200 episodes in there. It is evergreen content. Episode one is just as good as the day I released it. Please go through the archive. Have a look around. When you go to the archive website at www.explorethespaceshow.com, you can see also all of the different topics that we have looked at. Gender equity, gun violence, climate change, leadership, racism and anti-racism in healthcare. It is just a packed archive. I'm incredibly proud of it definitely please take a look. Please do shoot me an email anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. You can find me on Twitter at ETS show, and you can definitely subscribe to Explore the Space on Apple Podcasts or wherever you'd like to download your shows. Please do leave us a rating and a review as well. Help us celebrate episode 200 by giving us a great review. Really helps the show out. I am indebted and delighted to all of you who are fans of the show and who listen to the show. We don't hit 200 episodes without a lot of support, a lot of energy, a lot of people rooting for everything that's happening on Explore the Space podcast. To everyone who's come on the show, who's listened to the show, who enjoys the show, all of you, I'm just indebted, I am delighted, and I just cannot wait to do more. All that said, and without further ado, my mom, Margaret Shapiro. Hi, Mom. Welcome to Explore the Space. Hi, Mark. Thank you. I'm glad to be on your show. This is really fun. This is episode 200. So, Dad was episode 100, and you're episode 200, and this is an absolute treat. I will try not to cry. I'm <laughs> beaming with smiles right now. This is awesome. Thanks, Mom. Thank you. Uh, I'm delighted. So, 
lots of places we could start. Okay. You're married to a doctor. You have your own career. You've raised two children. You emigrated from another country. You're a grandparent. You are a teacher and a mentor. So much stuff. I would like to start actually at a, an interesting place just around the idea of mindset and stepping into tension and into uncertainty. And I want to start actually on the airplane when you and dad were leaving South Africa to come to the United States. So actually, like, take us into the airplane. You've just gotten married. You're going to leave South Africa. You're leaving your family. This is 1973. And you're off. Take us into that. We talk on the show a lot about stepping into tension. We talk a lot about this idea of things are hard, things are scary, things are uncertain. We're going to do them anyway. I would say that that moment probably captures a lot of those emotions. So take us on the airplane. So it was uh, Durban, South Africa. uh, And the flight out of Durban was painfully difficult because... I knew I was leaving my whole family behind. And they all came to the airport. So it was a big deal, you know, seeing everyone and kind of knowing that this, that we may go back, but that it was highly unlikely. This was a big step for dad in terms of his career because he was going to UCLA to specialize in nephrology. So, you know, there was a good chance that we would remain immigrants in America. Mm -hmm. So uh, that feeling of being on the plane and sort of watching it bank over the Indian Ocean and flying off. We went off to Johannesburg first and then flew to Los Angeles from Johannesburg. But you look down at that and you think, when will I see it again? Um, The Indian Ocean is so particular to South Africa, you know. So we got to we got to actually to New York first and we got our green cards, which was so perplexing because they were actually blue. We got <laughs> we arrived in New York, we were ushered off the plane, we had all our papers yeah. and our photographs, and I was ushered into a cubicle with a woman who was very sweet, and um, we got our green cards, and then we flew across the country to LA. Yeah. And And um, it was summertime. It was September in Los Angeles. And I remember thinking, what on the earth have we done? Because Los Angeles was completely fogged in. And I thought summer was supposed to be South African sunshine. Yeah. And that was sort of our landing in L.A. and our beginning there. I had a cousin there, Stan Kelvin, and he took great care of us. And we bought our first car on a Sunday, which we couldn't believe because shop, the, nothing was open on Sundays in South Africa. So we had a very sharp learning curve. Um, How old were you? I was then 21. Okay. But I, Dad and I got married when I was 18. Right, right. And we lived abroad then and came back to South Africa. When so. you were on the airplane and you were looking at the Indian Ocean, what yeah. would you say was your chief emotion? Just v- terrible confusion. Huh. Terrible um, emotional conflict. Yeah. 
what we, you know what are we doing uh, leaving mo- my mom my sisters my brother my whole family my whole culture that i knew you know i was i was pretty much a south african through and through but i had always thought that america would be where I would want to go. I always loved Harley Davidson's. They represented freedom for me. So I fancied that as a image I would kind of love in the United States. But it was very difficult. My by then my mom was a widow and so leaving her was hard. Yeah. I would say it was very charged. Yet hopeful and optimistic for an opportunity to be out of South Africa. South Africa was so tumultuous and it was only going to get worse which it did. We We knew it was going to get worse um, because of the prime minister at that time. And there was this feeling that if we didn't get away, we wouldn't, you know, we would not be able to get away. So it was that push-pull. It was get out while we can, while we have a ticket out, while I, you know, we can sort of save ourselves from what was going to happen thereafter. And the writing was on the wall. So um, it's really interesting. that sort of a narrative mm. where it's the beginning of September 2020 and we're approaching the most important presidential election of my lifetime for sure. Yes. You used a word that I'm really glad that you said you used the word optimism. Mm. And you and I had a conversation a couple days ago, you, me, and Dad. Uh, I came over after a day of work and we were hanging out, physically distanced, but we were talking about just everything that's going on. And, you know, Sonoma County's just had another wildfire and there's political discord and upheaval in the United States. There's just so much going on. And my mindset and mind frame when we were having that conversation were really, really negative and really, really dark. I remember the three of us were talking and I was swearing and I was just mad. And I looked over at you and Mm. you were just sort of staring at me calmly, as Mm. you always do. Mm. And you just started talking in a manner that was infused with that same sense of optimism. Mm. And I tear up when I think about it. Um, And I've been tearing up ever since we had that talk because it's just... It, that sense of optimism, I think, has the way I know you has just defined so much of how I know you. Mm. Do you feel like you carry a sense of optimism? Is that something that you try to keep out front? Uh, yes, I do. Actually, it's my my flag, if you will. Mm. Um, I tend to look at things. I have, you know, majored in history like you did, yeah, so yeah. I know how dark history can be. And actually, that helps to format for me that things change, this will pass, and that there's, uh, there's always the other side of, um, of the dark. And uh, so, yeah, I do feel that I've carried a sense... I suffered loss when I was very young, mm-hmm. a big loss. And I think that it turned a dial which sort of said you can either fall into it or you can move forward. And I was lucky enough to go to wonderful school, wonderful role modeling, and learned a kind of optimism, even in dark times. Are there times or tools that you use to remind yourself of that, or is it now just instinctive? 
And the reason that I ask that mm. is because I would suggest that many of us struggle to keep that sense of optimism. It can wax and wane. Are there things? Because you're you're wonderful at it, and you carry it. I think that it draws people to you. Are there tools that you use or levers that you pull that are effective at keeping that pragmatically and appropriately forward-facing as your flag, as you put it? There was a pivotal time, and it was in South Africa. I was about 18 or 19 years old, and the University of Cape Town, uh, some students went to a uh, protest. It was the Church of Desmond Tutu, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. We stood on the stairs, uh, a peaceful protest, asking for free um, tuition for uh, African students because white students had a free tuition. And that protest, there were probably only about 20 of us. And um, I, the police arrived in, in their blue uniforms, gold badges, dogs, um, black mariahs. They were ready for conflict. And we were, we were young and naive. And they arrived, and over the megaphone, one of them said, if anyone raises a, ba- a, a protest banner, they'll, get, they'll be arrested. And they were there full on with their batons they were ready and uh, a young student who I didn't know raised a uh, banner right then and that moment I just saw my life pass me by like a caravan in in the Sahara Desert I just saw the camel train moving away and I knew in that moment um, our passports could get taken away we could be not able to leave um, the family would get terrorized and I thought that was the pivotal moment and after that I said this you know this is I was it was very depressing very depressing you know dark night of the soul time actually and I knew that that can happen that that dark place can it's an abyss that waits and I think getting to America and sort of building on uh, the fact that I could be personally safe, that I became more and more optimistic. And then um, a pivot, another pivotal time was having children and raising them and watching the sort of blossoming of, of spirit, you know. I loved being a mother. I absolutely loved that time in my life. Um, Why do you use the past tense? You're st- I'm still a mother. (laughs) Well, sort of, I unhitched myself from that parachute and let you guys land in your own fields. So I try to modify myself. Oh, you don't feel it? Okay. Well, that's good. That's reassuring. But I love that. And for us, it was making an American family because we'd left everybody behind. And so I think it was sort of a, uh, it was just so clear. It was a choice of making, making a life here. And it was, don't get me wrong, it was hard. Yeah. Uh, no family, learning a new culture, trying to buy baby, buy baby clothes and baby items, and everything had a different name. Right. Uh, I wanted to buy a cot, but no, it was a crib. And I wanted to buy a baby carriage, or I wanted to buy napkins, and napkins were diapers, and I didn't, so it was interesting. Yeah. But I think having you both made us an American family. And then also, you know, we made a community 
being a doctor's wife, I was part of a community immediately, which was wonderful. Let's spend some time. What has it been like being, I mean, you're in medicine. Yeah. You're, you, you married a physician. You, I mean, you and dad are so intertwined. It's hard to separate one life from the other in a lot of ways. I mean, you have your separate lives, but right. certainly I remember, you know, my childhood and growing up, I mean, it was, we were one very, very tight, you know, for some of the reasons you identify, right? We didn't have family here. Right. It was kind of us together right. to make, make our lives the best that we could. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, dad worked super hard and you worked super hard and the nights were late and all of that. Uh, and then you, you know, you have a son who went into medicine. What has been, how much has the practice of medicine, the field of medicine, how much has it defined you good and bad? Yeah, so a good question. Don't get me wrong. Being the wife of a physician is significant. And there's no real training for it. I was 18 when I became the wife of a physician. And you get hurtled into a world of drama, significant human drama very quickly. So that was difficult. Learning to kind of keep my paddle, so to speak. Those were the days when doctors, you know, you went in to see a patient maybe twice a night sometimes. The house phone never stopped ringing. No cell phones. Right. Being out and about and trying to find a telephone. Yeah. Um, Dad couldn't make it to your graduation from, it was your honors graduation at your middle school. Rinkin Valley, he and you just got one award after another award after another award, and he couldn't make it. He was working so hard. So I'd say being the wife of a physician, from my perspective, has been an, a real honor and a privilege. It's an amazing, amazing life. And you got to be up for the task. It's not an easy one. Yeah. Really isn't. Uh, we had to sort of hold the fort. Right. Dad was gone yeah. a, lot. a lot. And he was doing really, I always felt such good work. You know, I never, ever doubted your father in terms of him being a doctor. Never doubted his total commitment to his patients, the best care he could ever give them. They, they really, he, you know, he he gave of his best all the time. And I knew that always. And that I used to say to him, it was a very comforting feeling because I never sort of worried about him out there. Uh, never. Yeah. Um, he just worked incredibly hard. And, and you worked incredibly hard because you had Karen and I. Yeah. And we weren't easy and we were little and we were obnoxious. Mm, and- you were pretty easy when you were little. <laughs> it wasn't that. Things, things changed. But I got used to being in charge. Yeah. yeah. And and for better or for worse, you know, being in charge, making all the decisions. Right. It was, it, you know, it got kind of comfortable after a while. I like, you know, I was in charge. Do you think you still are? <laughs> it's funny that you say that. Because and, there's times where you'll tell me to do something. And I, I'm 44 years old. I'm a dad. I'm an attending physician. All these different things. I know. And mom says something like, yes, mom. Yes, yeah. Yes. Or I'm like, mom, don't, don't do that. Remember how old I am. Exactly. Yeah. Is yeah. it hard to disconnect from that? 
I actually think I've done really well disconnecting. I actually think I've been amazing. I think I'm a, you know, I'm like you, said, you disconnected the parachute and off we went. And you, you know, once you got your driver's license, I went back to school and that was marvelous. Yeah. My master's yeah. in counseling was fantastic. Yeah. It was a great opportunity and stood me in good stead. And, you know, it's been since 1991. And now I'm, you know, still working, which I'm yeah. so grateful for. Your work, I would say, has been a critical piece in terms of the, you know, just transitioning to a whole different phase of your life. And now most of your work is built around your writing practice. Mm. It's a writing practice. There are folks who are friends of mine, people who, who, who are going to listen to this, who, who write and who love to write and mm. who live through writing. Well, you, you called your project, your, your business, Sonoma County Writing Practice. What is writing practice? practice mean? Oh, that's such a big question. You know, um, we ask big questions here. Yeah. Uh, I was in a very traditional classical education and, uh, there was this sense that if you didn't write war and peace or a tale of two cities right off the bat or Hamlet, you may, may as well not write. It was incredibly uh, classical and demanding. So for me, and when I came to the United States, it was funny because I played with writing, but it was more, that's for somebody else. Mm. So when I realized that that was getting in my way, and I began writing about my childhood in South Africa, I began to see how I could do that and not feel like I had to be writing the best American novel or New York Times bestseller because there's an aspect of writing that's sort of therapeutic. It's not therapy. But when we start to tell our stories, there's a way that we change and um, we take ownership of our lives in an integral way. So to modify the writing so that it was accessible to anybody felt important to me. It felt like it was a shift that was really important. Not easy. It took me a while to be able to do that. But I took some classes at the junior college in poetry and began to sort of build my muscle and starting to believe in myself as a possible writer. And, you know, you teach what you need to learn. So I worked, I had lots of group practice because I worked with men who were domestically violent for a long time. And that really taught me how to be comfortable in a group, how to be able to sit in the group dynamic. And so that was a very helpful tool for me. And then giving to folks what I had been given, which was this realization that I could tell my story. And it didn't have to be perfect. It didn't have to be the best American novel or the best American memoir. It was my story. And I've developed myself over the 20, I've I've been doing that for 21 years. So I've changed. I've developed myself as a um, teacher, as a writer. And so I'm really grateful that I can offer that, especially because it has so many redeeming features. And I get amazing feedback from folks how it's a game changer for them. So yeah, you, you, you do, you teach what you need to learn. And I'm constantly learning. I like the name too, because I mean, you and I've talked about this forever. I'm a perfectionist and it's held me back in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. That name, writing practice, it's not writing excellence. It's not writing success. It's not writing to win. It's just, Hey, just, just get out there and swing the bat. 
Exactly. I love that. I think it's so smart. Yes. It's such a great mindset to have. I'm still struggling with it. Uh, and one of the things that delights me is that that's the mindset because I see you with your grandkids. And I know that that's what you're going to instill in them because I know I've told you and dad that one of my fears is that my flaws and faults will automatically transmit to my boy. And I don't want that. Mm. And knowing that you and dad are both, but have that carry that mindset to help them just really soar is so exciting and so inspiring. Yeah. 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 And so important for so many people. I really normalize that in my classes. Right off the bat, I say things like, this is writing practice, not writing perfect. Mm -hmm. And how it can overflow into the rest of your life. That This life we're living is just a practice. It's not a life perfect. It's a life practice. And that we learn. uh, Pema Chodron gave the uh, graduation address at Naropa University, and it's a very famous address that she gave. It goes something like fail, fail a lot, fail often, and fail well. That just gives me a cold chill even today to think about failing that much. Yeah, Yeah. because from her, it's what Bill Gates says. He won't hire anybody who hasn't faced failure. Failure is the best way for learning, growing, and shedding those fears of that inner critic that's just always there. And I talk a lot about that in my classes. We, We spend three whole classes on just the inner critic, how it how it infiltrates our lives and we don't it can run the show and we don't even know it's running the show we you know so I talk a lot about those aspects the that what we think is just what we think it's just brain energy it's not written in stone so there's a liberation I encourage folks I say find the rebel in yourself find the one the voice that's going to stand up and say this is this is what I really want to do so in the eight week class eight week semester we let we work with? Who am I? Where have I come from? Who is my inner critic? Or who is my committee of critics that's got something to say about everything I do? And that's so liberating for the writing. Yeah. And then we finish up with uh, my muse, Mm -hmm. what inspires me, and then we write about endings. So it's a full capsule of eight weeks, and it's writing compost. It's a great way to just build compost while you're building your writing. You know, you wouldn't go out and play tennis without practicing. You wouldn't run, you wouldn't go for the football team if you hadn't practiced. Well, we just practice writing. Mm -hmm. As you sit now, and you've done so much good stuff and I I definitely sense that you perceive that your kids are off and running and you've got grandkids that you pay attention to what what are the things that fulfill you the most that you can reproduce on a daily basis you know I have a very uh, imaginative mind yeah so that's very fulfilling it uh, it I'm very grateful for that but what I absolutely love is people. Mm-hmm. I love being with somebody, talking, writing, painting, doing art. Um, I have the women's year long. And when this, the eight of us are together, it's just magic. And I just am so grateful for having these opportunities that I have this opportunity to teach. I have this opportunity to expand. And 
and I get trapped by the inner critic myself. You know, I have to sort of redial myself and check in with myself about the ways that I can feel like I'm shaming myself or I'm falling into the traps of the of the sort of negative mind, the doubting mind. The uh, I I so I do that often. I stop myself and I check in to see where I'm tripping myself up. And um, I just, but the human interaction for me is exquisite, really. And in my position as a writing teacher, I get to watch people really find their zone. Mm. And it's very wonderful to be an observer of that transformation. So I do talk about that, too, and I teach. Um, So in a nutshell, that's it. But it's pretty expensive. Yeah. So then getting back to this idea of keeping optimism forward facing, Uh what you just described, we're all not able to do right now because we're in the midst of a pandemic that requires physical and social distancing and we can't gather in rooms and we can't sit around the table and do art and we can't do those things. Yet you are maintaining that mindset. How? Because it's hard. It's really hard. It is. It's very hard. Well, fortunately for me, I was a, I had a wonderful friend who jumped in and taught me Zoom very quickly and then sent me a T-shirt that said graduate of Zoom University, um, a dear beloved friend. And she, she stayed with me and then I was able to teach my students. So we were able to segue fairly rapidly from my office to on Zoom. So that's the writing practice. We're doing it on Zoom exclusively now. And the women's year long, we have been on Zoom and we are approaching another day long where we are going to gather outside, social distance, six feet apart, just for two hours so that we can literally see one another. We'll do some writing and we'll do some check-in, read some poetry, and then everybody will disperse. So that's kind of a first for us. Um, And folks love seeing each other. Just everybody's eyes light up. People get tearful. They're so happy to see one another. But um, I've been removed from an experience like that simply because in my work, I am around people all day. You are. We're wearing face shields, but I see lots and lots of people every single day. Yes. And I'm the exception. So hearing you describe it like that and the resonance of being able to sit physically distanced outside, being mindful of all the right things to do, but how much that's going to mean. Oh. That's really striking. It's a first. And um, however, I do like to instill in us that in Zoom, we can still embrace each other. There is a community feeling in Zoom Mm -hmm. that I am encouraging. And I'm also very mindful of the fact that folks are who live far away are now able to be on Zoom with me doing writing practice that they've always wanted to. So Zoom, you know, it's um, collateral beauty is what folks are calling it. And, um, you know, it's this hidden gems. And one of them is I have a student in New York, I have a student in Oregon, I have a student in New Mexico, and they're all benefiting. And folks, I think somebody said that after the pandemic, what people are going to want most is something that has to do with heart. 
And I think I'm witnessing that right now, that I am, people are wanting what I'm offering. And they know it's a way to center themselves and take their lives seriously. You know, their lives matter and their stories matter and their stories are hard and difficult and powerful and wonderful. And folks are writing poetry to give to their kids and writing their memoirs to give to their grandkids and couple of students are publishing their poetry. So there's this generative energy that's happening. And so I think in a strange way, this um, COVID has sort of propelled that. I don't know if, you know, everything I say is... <laughs> I always say, take what I take the things that I say, the, what I say that's useful to you, and leave the rest behind. And I'm saying that about this. It's a it's a significant time. Yeah. But yeah. anyway, it's, it's really wonderful that in the midst of all of this, we get to be physically distanced and sit down and put on microphones and, and chat. You get to come on my podcast. It's, it's, a, it's just an incredible thing. I, I can't imagine that at any point in my life or in your life we thought that something like this would happen but I'm so grateful to you for being such an amazing mom and such a great role model and all of the things that you do for me and for dad and for Karen and for Winfield and all of us so I love you mom thanks so much love you too thanks for asking me on board thank you loved it thanks again so much to my mom Margaret Shapiro for coming on the show and helping us celebrate episode 200. I know I did kind of start to lose it there at the end, but delighted that my mom could come on and be a part of all of this. This was very, very special. Thanks once again to Lori Bedkey and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Learn more about Creighton's Executive MBA and Executive Fellowship programs at www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E. And one last time, thanks to all of you for listening. Again, like I said at the top, we don't hit 200 episodes without an extraordinary amount of support and energy and vitality and feedback. All of those things, I am so grateful. I take none of it for granted. I'm just delighted to have all of you on this journey with Explore the Space. We will be back with episode 201 later this week, and we will press on towards 300. For all of your time that you've given us, I am so proud. I'm so grateful. Thank you very much. Remember to keep wearing your masks, maintain physical distancing, and wash your hands. Take care of yourselves, and we will see you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com, and please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show, and you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.